This morning, we hear from the Gospel of John and encounter the story of Christ's anointing at Bethany. You may find this on page 81 in your Pew Bible in the New Testament. Let us open our ears, our minds, our imaginations, and listen across time and space to hear God's wisdom in these words in the present moment. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took out a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. You bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You, have always have, you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Sheldon Van Auken, friend of C.S. Lewis, recalls his first transcendental moment in his memoir, A Severe Mercy. He says, He remembered as though it were but a few days ago, that winter night, himself too young even to know the meaning of beauty, when he had looked up at a delicate tracery of bare black branches against the icy glittering stars. Suddenly, something that was all at once pain and longing and adoring had welled up in him, almost choking him. He had wanted to tell someone, but he had no words inarticulate in the pain and the glory. It was long afterwards that he realized that nameless something that had stopped his heart was beauty. Beauty is sublime, painful, and wonderful. Beauty is the wonder of the resurrection that can only occur within the painful context of death. And I'm not talking just about Easter, though that sure fits the bill. I'm talking about what had happened just before this morning's gospel story. Jesus's dear friend, Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother had died. It's from this story that we get the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Over the course of that story, Jesus resurrects Lazarus, and this morning's gospel reading finds them all together again at Lazarus's house. 
The Gospel of John interweaves this story with the foreboding lead-up to Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and death, reminding us yet again that beauty, vulnerability, love, pain, and glory are interconnected in the web of the human and divine existence. Which brings us to Mary. Mary is the odd duck of the two sisters. Martha understands that dinner is not going to make itself. She hoists family responsibility as deftly and perhaps even as precariously as that character Louisa from Encanto. Mary, on the other hand, Mary has never quite gotten a handle on her emotions, nor her household duties. Remember in Luke's gospel when Mary sat transfixed at Jesus's feet while Martha took care of everything else? Now, whether this is the same anecdote reworked by John's gospel or an entirely separate encounter, Mary is at once both the butt of the joke and the one who Jesus lifts up as exemplar. A good woman of the house would prepare meals for her guests. A good disciple would, as Jesus once instructed, sell their belongings and give the money to the poor, right? And yet, as our Lenten curriculum reminds us, God doesn't need our good behavior. God needs our being. As I read this story, I was struck by how Mary's frivolous act of devotion could be read as an episode or example of unmasking. Unmasking is a term coined in the neurodivergent community, that is, folks who are autistic, have ADHD, dyslexia, Tourette's, or have other neurotypes that diverge from what our society deems typical. Masking to quote one activist, refers not just to your personality in front of other people, it's also the rules that you've created or learned about being a person and living in society that you don't believe in or that don't work with your physiology or that just don't work with you. Unmasking is what we call it when someone releases themselves from that pressure and begins allowing themselves to move speak, act, or communicate as their authentic self. Unmasking at its core is a brazen, courageous act. It is an act that says, the amount of energy I spend on making my outward expressions align with what the world wants them to be is slowly burning me out. It is slowly killing me. I deserve to use my energy being me, not hiding me. Unmasking can be dangerous. It can further marginalize neurodivergent folks. For example, our professional norms, and in many cases, our unwritten rules of politeness and decorum, are based off of the way that neurotypical brains function. For example, we might see an executive who makes subtly sexist jokes written off as simply being a little old-fashioned, while the project manager who stims to stay focused during client meetings or who, instead of laughing, flaps their hands to express joy is passed over for a promotion 
because their body movements are thought to be unprofessional. Many neurodivergent people are naturally direct communicators, and yet our society, whether we like it or not, often deals in subtext and implications. If you don't know the code, you're seen as naive and awkward at best, or rude and aggressive at worst. Imagine trying to communicate directly about a justice issue that affects you. In a world where subtext is king, where we only ever talk about, where we don't ever talk about the tough stuff, and where visible emotions are often seen as too much. Depending on your identity and the issue at hand, unmasking can have serious ramifications. Mary breaks open the jug and pours out the expensive burial perfume onto Jesus' feet, which she then wipes with her hair. Though scolded by Judas, who fragrantly shoulds on her, Jesus steps in to remind us that these types of frivolous acts of devotion, often deemed too much by other people, are exactly what God calls us to do. We often get so focused on what is good behavior, entirely missing the ways that what qualifies as good behavior is often decided by the empire. We try to make ourselves smaller, more palatable, afraid of being too much. When God tells us time and time and time again that all we need is to just be exactly as we are. The self-love needed to be ourselves fully and unapologetically, whether or not is within the context of unmasking, is really scary. What if I take it too far? What if I love myself so much that I stop taking accountability for my actions? What if I let myself entirely off the hook Aren't I supposed to continually try to be better and do better? Well, I'm here to tell you that you can't accidentally love yourself into narcissism. And even if we could, with the level of shame and self-doubt that we all probably carry around with us each and every moment, I doubt that loving ourselves a little more is going to be the straw that breaks that particular camel's back. What richness do you keep locked away, hidden from the world? What integral aspects of your being do you hide behind a mask in service of how others say you should be? What if Jesus told you that the time to break open that vessel is now? What if God reassured you that you are not too much? You are exactly enough. What richness would be uncovered? What brazen act of beauty would spill forth? Is there a more radical and rich way to worship the creator than by fully being our created selves? Do we ever journey closer to Jesus than when we fully embody the beloved community 
and celebrate the richness and wonder of one another unmasked. My siblings, this is the birthright to unmask and live fully into our identity, created, loved, and exactly enough. Amen.